Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. One, two, three, four. Hello and welcome to your own personal Beatles. We're back with another fabulous episode this week. I am Jack Pelling. And I'm Robin Allender. How's things? Have you had a good week? Yeah, it's Seems not like bad. ages since we last spoke because we pre-recorded last week's episode. Yeah, we're sort of falling gently into autumn. How you? How is autumn for you? Autumn is, as I look out the window, beautiful, but it's uh, not really matched by <laughs> the sort of incredibly frantic uh, week I've had moving house. Oh yeah. Um, so yeah, I haven't. I'm feeling very out of touch with. Uh, you know, just general life because mm. I've been basically pu- pulling stuff out of boxes and putting things into boxes as the you know the variety of life. That, that sounds I've nice. Your new house looks very nice. I can see it in the background there. You've got your records on the shelf there. Well, I mean, one thing about moving house is you do begin to see the benefits of the humble MP3. Yeah, yeah. And maybe that loss of high end quality <laughs> is a price worth paying. Yeah. But uh, speaking of which, actually, I rediscovered an album because um, it's something that I did dig out right at the beginning of these podcasts, Mm. um, but something that I was uh, needed to reassess. And, um, you know, a little reminder of that was an email this week that came from Chris Demetrio, who said, Hi, Jack and Robin, I hope you're well. I just wanted to say thank you for your excellent podcasts on the Beatles. I describe to most other Beatles podcasts out there, but really like your unique take on what they mean to us personally. Oh, that's nice. I also like the fact that you don't go in for the hagiolatry of some other fan podcasts, which uh, I must admit is a word I just looked up, and it means uh, the, the worship of, uh, for example, saints. Yeah, um, I thought you said so, yeah. Hegelian. I thought you said Hegelian. We, we could be the only Beatles Hegelian podcast. I, I don't actually know what Hegelian is either. But No, me neither, but mm. let's whack it in the description sure, sure. see if we get any extra downloads. So he, he goes on to say, um, I hope I'm not disrespecting your guests when I say that while I've listened to and appreciated every episode you've put out so far, thanks very much, Chris, mm. the one I enjoyed the most was just you two chat nattering away to each other. Oh, that's nice. Um, which is very nice. Mm. Um, in that episode, though, there is something I have to pull you up on. Oh, no. Here we go. Uh, You were discussing Lennon's solo years, and I think it was Jack who said that while Mind Games was a good song, everything else on that album was pretty dross. Mm. Uh, I'm not sure if you were referring back to Double Fantasy or about the Mind Games album, but, um, and this is going to be my controversial Beatles-related opinion, I think Mind Games is Lennon's best album. Nice. Give it another try. The title track... Bring It On Lucy, Out of the Blue, one of Lennon's best songs. Mm. Uh, You are here. So much good stuff. Anyways, I hope you don't mind me getting in touch and keep up the good work. Nice. Absolutely not. We love people and getting in touch. I'll have another deep dive into that one. You're absolutely right. I mean, I didn't go back and listen to the first episode again, but it does sound like some sort of flippant remark I might make. And I do remember the week after we recorded that, listening to Mind Games and thinking, oh, I was a bit harsh on that. Mm. I'm not with you on You Are Here. But I think, uh, yeah, Which is it the is one with Dream Number and, 9 on? Because that that's a good album too. That's on Walls and Bridges. Mm. Yeah, I like that one. Uh, but this, I think the whole problem with this, um, this Hegelian podcast, the nature of the Hegelian podcasts in and of themselves is uh, there's so much spirit the Scalia isn't there like constantly regretting saying something oh yeah or yeah, wishing exactly. you got it right or well, and especially it makes you I mean we're sort of we're doing a 20 episode run and I think we're episode 15 in or something and mm. you, it makes me realize how much I have learned from doing it oh because... yeah like I I, I um yeah I've, I've done so much reading and listening since we started but I kind of yeah. naively thought I could get away with just <laughs> sort of thinking of facts that appear in my head rather than actually looking stuff up. Yeah, and I've changed my opinion on quite a few things. Yeah, yeah, me too. And and Mind Games is probably was just me having not listened to it a while and putting too much credence into the uh, the like sort of lukewarm reception that it got. But mm. I do like loads of tracks on it. I think the 
the criticism that is leveled at it is that it's a little bit toothless and it's sort of Lennon sort of beginning to betray the fact that he's running out of things to say and that mm. the anger has kind of dried up, right. which is fine. And there are a bit, there's one too many saxophone solos on it. But, uh, <laughs> you don't yeah, get a sax a solo album. anymore, do you? I was listening to Sade a lot and you really get a raspy sax solo going on. You don't really hear it so often these days. No, my friend Dom refuses to listen to anything with a saxophone in it. And, <laughs> well, um, I'm like that with fretless bass, to be fair. I'm not, but like fretless bass was a cancer. <laughs> yeah it's like everyone in the 80s was like what the fuck is that <laughs> i want it it's crazy yeah bizarre yeah, so you know we're, we're very uh willing to change our opinions but you know i'm still hold firm on uh obladi oblada which uh is comes up in this podcast and is also the subject of of this email mm-hmm. from someone called desmond nice appropriately He says, welcome. I've spent too much time glued to the pod, which I might add is fantastic. My personal Beatles sits firmly with Sergeant Pepper and dancing around the conservatory at seven years old with a full Beatles history lesson from my uncle Philip. We were transfixed. Don't tell my dad I still have his vinyl. (laughs) Fast forward 25 years and I'm listening to the pod on the reg. I figure I'm a pro, but hold up. I'll just paraphrase what's happened here, but Desmond is, uh, he's in San Francisco, USA. Nice. Uh, he's, a, he's had a few cans. There's been a buzz at the door and uh, he's gone to get his McDonald's. It's uh, midnight. Is this a stream uh, of says, consciousness? Like <laughs> I'm just sort of paraphrasing <laughs> okay, it because right, he, he's a few sheets to the wind and yeah. some of the, uh, he tends to mix his tenses. Mm, um, but I've had yes. a few cans and I forgot my keys. <laughs> I'm left outside with nothing but a Big Mac, my phone and a pair of earphones. Having just listened to the last pod with Kevin and Jem, he's basically going to try out some, in quotation marks, new music. I plug in and search for Rubber Soul for the very first time. Wow. So here I am on the stoop, locked out, listening to the first time I'm what I'm dreaming is going to be the best album ever, never heard by my ears. Have to say, disappointed, distinctly <laughs> average. <laughs> well, I think he might be getting his experiences confused with the listening process there. I mean, if you're locked out of your house, Rubber Soul isn't really going to slap, is it? No, I mean, he says perhaps it's the cold, yeah. uh, but turns out you can't beat your personal Beatles and yours will always be the version of what you remember in the moment. Indeed. In its best light. As my controversial Beatles opinion, my favourite song is Obla Dee, Obla Da, and it will likely be the song for the first dance at my wedding. Oh. Much love, Desmond and Molly. Um, hey. And it, if, you're, if you're called Desmond and you're getting married to someone called Molly, I think whether you like Obla Dee, Obla Da or not, yeah. you've got to have that as your first dance. Oh, definitely, that's lovely. What a great email. Um, but I would say stick with it, Desmond. Um, Rubber Soul, it, it definitely is good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, love San Francisco. Great pub called the Hemlock Tavern. Uh, you know, it's probably Ooh, closed. Well, there around. you go. So you may remember I've talked a few times about being in the band Gravenhurst, which was led by Nick Talbot. And I'm, I'm very close with Nick's brothers, Paul and Sean, as well. I used to live with Paul. And Paul sent me a really nice email, which is Paul had a very strange attitude to washing up though when I lived with him. He sort of put everything in the dishwasher when he could have just washed up a teaspoon, sort of held everything to ransom. It was a bit frustrating. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, his mum Mercia, um, he told his mum Mercia, who's a huge Beatles fan, about the podcast, and she wanted to tell her personal Beatles story. Um, and she, but she was very, she, she definitely wanted to really clarify that she was not an Apple scruff. She definitely wanted that kind of emphasise, but she said she had a great story about. I was working in Oxford Street, had a half day, and on the off chance went to St John's Wood with a friend from work who was also a fan. This was um, this was in the 60s, by the way, not just the other day. Had been there early in the year, but was told by his housekeeper that he was in Scotland. And when my friend and I got to his house, there were about eight other girls hanging around. So those were the apple scruffs of which she was not one. Fans like myself were known to the scruffs as tourists. However, on this day, which is about three days before Christmas 1968, we waited a few hours and we knew Paul was at home because he had a few visitors who had to speak to an intercom to be let in and we heard Paul reply to them. Can you imagine the excitement? Mm. As I had come on the off chance and not brought my autograph book, I had to scrounge a bit of paper and a pen from someone. The gates opened and Paul appeared in his Aston Martin car. He stopped the car. It's quite partridge. Yeah. <laughs> no, Paul is quite partridge. Yeah. Um, he stopped the car and I went forward with my pen and paper in a state of delirium. He said, hello, red lips, and I like your floppy hat. <laughs> I like your voice. so nice. That's Not great. sure in what order as it was a long time ago. He signed my bit of paper and added a kiss. Uh, that's so nice. But the, the great thing as well is um, Paul, 
Paul's dad, Peter, also has a really great Beatles story, um, mm. which was which I really like this one. So my dad, Peter, worked at what was then Midland Bank at Heathrow in the late 60s doing currency exchange. John came to the desk on the way back from India. So this is, you know, when they were writing all the White Album stuff. So about 1968, looking very hippie, according to my dad. (laughs) (laughs) He wanted to change rupees to sterling. My dad told him he couldn't exchange them as the rupees were effectively worthless. John John said, thanks for the experience and walked away. I really that did make me laugh because you can really hear John's voice in that one. Yeah, that's amazing. <laughs> I love that. Like even the most boring like Beatles story just somehow manages to be like. Yeah, a I love it. I love Hello little... Red Lips. It's great. Oh, and um, and Mercy Renter email. By the way, we must have a chat soon. I ran at the weekend and spoke to Sean when you were away. I really miss you both. So, Paul, give your mum a ring. <laughs> great that's Paul Talbot, not Paul McCartney, by the way. But yeah. Paul was named after Paul McCartney, I think. Oh, really? Yeah, and he's left-handed. That's funny. Yeah. Well, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> Good stuff. Thank you so much, and um, keep them coming in. If you want to get in touch with the show, you can email me at jack at homespunsounds.com or you can go to personalbeatles.com forward slash contact. Mm. Um, and thank you so much for all the donations that people have given into the show. It uh, has really helped us and uh, it's incredibly appreciated. And if you want to be one of those lovely people, you can go to personalbeatles.com forward slash donate. Um, you can also get in touch with us on social media at Personal Beatles on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram or whatever if you want to share your stories with there. But we won't keep you any longer because we've got a fantastic episode coming up with the brilliant musician, arranger, producer, writer, co-founder of Space Bomb Records, Matthew E. White. Well, this was a really great episode. It was We kind of got quite nerdy about production stuff, like Matthew is mm. obviously a producer, so that was really interesting. There was a nice bit uh, where we were talking about, you were talking about kind of how Sgt. Pepper was the first album which kind of had an impact as an album in America. And I'd always known Mm. that, you know, Rubber Soul was bastardised for the American market, as in tracks were taken off Rubber Soul. I'd I'd completely forgotten that Revolver was as well. So, you know, Revolver, the Revolver that was issued in, um, in America, it didn't have Mm. I'm Only Sleeping and Your Bird Can Sing and Dr. Robert. I mean... Revolver without I'm Only Sleeping is absolute insanity, isn't it? Yeah. And it was was it because yeah. of Yesterday and Today? That yeah, they... so there was an album called Yesterday and Today, which contained tracks from Help, Rubber Soul yeah. and Which is Revolver. the infamous Butcher cover. Yeah, the Butcher cover, which is rather and shocking if you want to Google <laughs> that. But yeah, that's a very strange album. It's got Drive My Car. It's got Yesterday on it, obviously. It's got And Your Bird Can Sing, which is, just, you know, it's a bizarre album, isn't it? Yeah, that's that's really driving around the houses. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it must have been like so. That was what was interesting chatting to Matthew E. White as an American about that kind of those touchstones don't quite exist in the same way until you get to Sergeant Pepper. Yeah, it was brilliant. Mm. I really found it fascinating the way that he talks about how British and Americans have a different kind of relationship with with the Beatles and stuff. And yeah. the British is probably slightly more kind of tabloidy, mm, <laughs> um, yeah, and you yeah. know, obsessive with the personalities and stuff. It was a really interesting take on it. And he has some great stories about his time growing up overseas, listening to the Beatles, yeah. and uh, growing up on Penny Lane in the Philippines. Yeah, amazing. <laughs> um, so it's fantastic. The biggest revelation for me was uh, working out that his fantastic. Day debut album big inner is in fact called beginner well it's a play <laughs> and, uh, on words isn't it, it we totally pun, missed it much like the beatles which i didn't realize was a pun until i was about 20 <laughs> yeah. so he's a really superb guest we won't keep you any longer here is matthew e white's personal beatles we're delighted to welcome to your own personal beatles mr matthew e white hello matthew yeah hello very glad to be here thank you for having me have, have you listened to the podcast? I listened to um, the first couple episodes, yeah. Cool. And then I, th- I actually stopped because I was like, I'm just going to pick up on... Yeah. I, I want to be, fr- you know, fresh. Fresh sure, sure. content. Yeah. I mean, I get I get bored of podcasts. I stop listening to it myself, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's just two idiots talking about something they know nothing about. No, it's fun. This is no. fun. It's great. It's a nice uh, subject to dig into. Yeah. It's definitely. intimidating talking to English people about the Beatles. I feel like there's a, I don't know, there's something to that. 
really? It's a different. Yeah. Ex- I think it's a different experience. That right. was when, it, when I started touring over there. Was I like to ask people about the Beatles because I think it's so different. Mm. I, I can't quite put my finger on it, but there's a sort of, maybe it's a sort of slightly well, you know when people say the British sense of humor sometimes doesn't translate. Is there there an element of that? You know, well maybe, but I, I think it's more like they're like an English band. They're you, yeah. you sort of yeah. feel like right. they're one of you. Yeah, yeah, and to to me or to americans it's it's they're kind of other you know they sort of come out of come out over there and landed over here they are a bit sort of like the royal family in that they're they're really ubiquitous and everyone's kind of pretty fond of them but i suppose if you meet like american beatles fans they're usually like mega beatles fans yeah right yeah it's a different it's just a different there's but also i feel like i don't know sometimes i feel like english people or some English people that I've met have gripes with them and, and like more minor gripes right. with, <laughs> with, 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 that would never have occurred to me. Like almost as if they're friends. Yeah, they like they're kind of part them. of the family and yeah, they're just yeah, like annoyed yeah. at Paul for something. It's like, yeah. I don't know. Wow, okay, yeah. cool. It kind of reminds me in a weird way of when I was um, playing with Jan at Tearson and um, they, they obviously knew Andre, Andre Previn as a very famous oh, uh, musician funny. but like in britain you just can't, you basically know him because of morecambe and wise this comedy show he appeared on <laughs> and it's like and showing that sketch to french people was like incredible they like couldn't believe it kind of thing so it was, yeah uh, that's kind of I wonder if there's an element of that as well where it's yeah, like maybe. we're familiar with the beatles more more kind of in terms of the popular culture as well maybe rather yeah, than the music mm. yeah it could be i noticed that on the first couple podcasts actually there was like a lot people talked about that Mm. a little bit about the sort of the cultural impact and i guess for me or like the celebrity of it and the the their sort of personal you know who paul is or who john is or who george is like as Mm. people and as sort of characters in the theater of it all like that's for me that's so little of my experience with with the music it's kind of interesting yeah Mm. I think it's like a lot of it's sort of tabloid culture as well yeah, because right. yeah. they are a sort of like they have Paul especially has that kind of almost royal status. So we do tend to know everything about his uh, the ups and downs of his divorces and all that yeah, stuff. Right. British people are just like preternaturally fascinated in that sort of yeah. <laughs> behind the scenes stuff, I suppose. Yeah. But um, I guess like Elvis is probably the American like equivalent maybe hmm. of like yeah. that kind of superstardom. Yeah, probably, but there, but Elvis isn't nearly as interesting musically, yeah. and he's no, and that doesn't true. really go on anymore. Do, do you ever find if British people talk to you about like hip hop or something, they kind of do you feel like does that sound kind of weird? Um, <laughs> it uh, well, that's a funny one to bring up I, yeah. because actually, well, that one's really layered because mm. I when British people talk to me about hip hop, I think I do have a sense, a very strong sense that that's like music from my world from my culture that's like kind of my music but that in and of itself is a f- odd sort of sense because i'm a middle-class white guy but mm-hmm. i have a sense of like hip-hop and the, i mean i grew up listening to that but mm-hmm. but it's just there's sort of, that's that's sort of a, a unique insight into american culture and yeah how that how black art interplays Mm-hmm. in white culture as i'm growing up and kids are growing up but but i do feel i do feel that sometimes because while i was touring when kendrick lamar's first record came out mm-hmm. and that was such a big talking point a lot of the time and yeah that was an interesting experience talking to british people and europeans in general about that record and what it meant and how it struck me versus how it played out to them and yeah. things that were missed or things that perspectives that people had that were a little bit different than mine and yeah, mm. um. yeah. I get a sort of similar thing when you when anything that sort of crosses that sort of transatlantic thing, whether it's like comedy or music. It's I, I always found it has fascinating that Americans could get into things like the British version of The Office to oh, right. the same extent as you could as a mm. British, because which I was is probably a, said the same with like hip hop going the other way is that there's so many cultural references that go way over your head. You assume yeah, right. that the people aren't going to pick up on the nuances of it, but people completely get it, and it mm. is universal. It's just... Yeah, that's interesting. The journalist Simon Price made a really good point the other day about uh, The Cure. He 
he's listening to the cure a lot and the cure are huge in central america and south america and it's like what do they actually like about the cure i mean the cure are great but is it the kind of gray britishness of it that seems kind of almost like fantastical <laughs> to them you know it's like maybe yeah. there's an element of that when americans get into british culture or comedy or music yeah i don't know it's interesting yeah <laughs> lots of lots to dig into there but so yeah matthew we've met before obviously but could you yes. give a little bit of background to the listeners about kind of you're a musician yourself, but you've also kind of created an empire. <laughs> <laughs> That's Do you incorrect. want to kind of give an introduction me, to yeah. Space Bomb and that kind Let of Let me thing? correct you. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, um, I started a record label in 2012 uh, called Space Bomb Records, out of, based out of Richmond, Virginia, that is um, started as a record label that's kind of based off a house band model like Motown or Stax, mm. and we have a strong group of musicians here then we invite artists to come in and and we produce their records and then put them out and um the first thing we did was put out um my first record beginner which was more or less a business card for the label process uh, that, shit i've just realized that, i've that just the done the same thing i know what you're gonna say <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> eight sorry. years later yeah. i'm just hearing you actually say the, the title uh, and it was my inner. favorite record of that year yeah. and i just That's, realized it's that, a like pun. seven years wow 2012 oh, wasn't yeah. it yeah. that english so, degree 2012 used, came out it's good use <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah it's called big inner b-i-g space i-n-n-e-r for listeners um, it's a pun that many, many, most people, I would say, didn't get, which I think makes it on the writer, not on the <laughs> audience. <laughs> like very much like the Beatles. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, anyhow, that record came out and, and did good enough for us to kind of keep going. And um, so now I release music under my own name and um, also kind of work with the rest of the folks at Space Bomb to release other people's music and mm -hmm. produce some music. Um, as well so it's kind yeah. of a short, and, very um, short it's been a really good year for you i mean considering it's a corona year it's been a good year for space bomb i guess because pretty good year uh it just depends on the metric you're using to measure things but there are some things to be excited about yeah. um and uh you know it's a journey i mean the music industry is a completely it's like a totally fucked up industry. It's insane. Mm -hmm. It's a completely insane. So some parts of that can be really fun and some parts of it are always frustrating. And, you know, it's always, it, it's always a, <laughs> an adventure, you know, and especially now, I mean, now is like a, it was a wild west before the spring and, and yeah. now it's just completely, totally opened up. COVID has almost kind of like, uh, you know, pulled the curtain on, the problems with the music industry anyway in some ways it's like musicians are saying you know well obviously we can't tour now but can't, we couldn't really tour anyway <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah right well it's, yeah well yeah i mean it, it, there's just so many you know there's so many layers of what being a musician in the music industry is and mm -hmm. it just it all depends who's talking and what experiences they've had and what that you know just what that means for them. And then obviously mm -hmm. what the COVID experience, kind of how that intersects with them. Cause some people it's kind of helpful to, I mean, not helpful, but like some people don't intersect with it in such a traumatic way, but then there's mm -hmm. certain musicians that really do base their income off touring. And it's harder. It's hard to think of a harder hit sector in any, mm -hmm. in the whole sphere of things than the touring music industry. I mean, yeah. it's pretty much gone from a hundred to zero. So you know, so that can be really tough. But then some people are who don't rely on that or whose like whole kind of artistic angle doesn't rely as much on, on touring and yeah. it, it and intersects with social media or something like that. Like that's it's a great time for that. Mm -hmm. And um, you know, I don't know. We'll we'll see. We'll see. I mean yeah. it'll normalize and have you done recording, in some way. Like socially distanced recording this year then. We did, I've started to do, not, no, I haven't done any kind of like mm. sort of Pro Tools sessions or like sending sessions around and stuff like that. That's really not, mm -hmm. I mean, I should do more of that. I just, <laughs> I just yeah, now's the time. It's, yeah. just, it's just not, I just, 
don't like that. It's quite far mm. away from the sort of space ball. Yeah, music, so so opposite yeah. of that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I did. I have started doing reco- some sessions again. Um, kind of like just rhythm section sessions, and then we're doing um, I'm doing a brass section outside actually on Monday, which is kind of cool. fun. So the the house band idea was that something that you sort of. Did you always want to set yourself those parameters or was it something that came out of recording Beginner? Oh, no. It, beginner, other way around. Beginner came out of rec- the idea to do the label. I mean, the, the Beginner, the story is basically I wanted to be a producer, so, mm-hmm. but I, I didn't have any... I, wanted, I mean, the dream job for me was like a David Axelrod or somebody, somebody who just produced for a record label and kind of had the green light to do like wild shit. I mean, that was yeah. that was it that was like oh man that would be the best thing ever but that system didn't really exist in the music industry when i mm-hmm. wanted to do that so it was kind of like oh, well that's what i want to do well i need to set up a label that will be self-sustaining to hire me to do that yeah. and then to mm-hmm. do that we need to make a record that shows that we can do that but then we didn't have any experience doing that actually so i sort of self-volunteered to do that and then I had to write songs to make the record, and then I had to sing the songs that I had written. So basically, uh, to quote William Blake, I must create a system or be enslaved by another man. So you <laughs> yeah. <know> to... <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. I just started putting that on the records. That was all kind of backwards. But, I mean, the, the house band thing just came out of, I think, one, just being in a really special music community in Richmond and, mm-hmm. and feeling that there was, with a little bit of organization, that the that it really was something magnetic and and legitimately special. It wasn't mm. just sort of a branding exercise. It, it was that, and I still, you know, I stand by this. It's like, I think when people come here and they are around the musicianship that's here, it's just pound for pound as good as any place in the world. And there's yeah. some incredibly exceptional talent here that, that you know, it's just, kind of coming of age in that and feeling that and and feeling like organizing that a little bit and focusing it would be something to give us all of us musicians in that community sort of an opportunity and just a good way to create an economy for ourselves to be professional musicians Mm. and do what we Mm. wanted to do so the house band was just i don't know i was reading a lot about labels and um it's kind of the music that i that i liked the the southern soul music and motown and Mm. Um, also read this uh, incredible book called This Is Reggae Music and just about the Jamaican music industry and just how like, I don't know, how it's like really simple A to B in, in a lot of ways. It's just like, here's the band, here's the song, here's the singer, you make it, yeah. you put it out, people are attracted to it, you do it again. And that that kind of just like r- system and the ability to kind of tweak that system and kind of continue to get better over the, a long period of time instead of sort of trying to come at the music industry at an angle where you're kind of trying to sell kind of a personality or like Mm -hmm. a style or a caricature Mm. or something like was a lot more attractive to me or i mean that's that's overstating i can't do it the other way so it was like the (laughs) only way that i felt like i could approach being a professional musician that that was kind of also intersecting with like a creative, you know, was, was act, was active in the actual industry and I was making stuff and I wasn't like a, you know, a professor or something like that. It was like, I wanted to make stuff and release it. I think that's a reason. I mean, um, we're obviously going to talk about the Beatles, but I think uh, that's a reason there's a nostalgia for the Beatles. And for that time was the idea that the music industry was a kind of industry. You know, there were people in white coats at Abbey road and, you know, I, 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 I love the idea of like, you know the Brill Building, or like yeah. Carol King turning up to work, and your job is songwriting. You know, <laughs> and the kind yeah. of the idea of the in-house band kind of plays into that kind of yeah, definitely. And I think actually it's a job, you know, and it's an industry, and you know, the Beatles really intersect with that whole thing. I mean, they were, you know, they're not a house band in that context, but I do think that they're an amazing example of you know the four of them on their own. You know, everyone has different opinions about this, but mm-hmm. like when they start to intersect with uh, George Martin and really using Abbey Road and kind of like maximizing the resources that are to their are like are available to them, mm-hmm. that's when that that art starts to like be like almost intimidatingly good. It's, mm-hmm. It just yeah. goes from yeah. being like a a band that's like okay, 
great songwriters. They're magnetic, but there's a lot of that kicking around. And then yeah. you start to cross over and one plus one, instead of equaling two, it's like one plus one equals 10. And like yeah. that, that art, when they're kind of working at it in that way is really, it's spect- I mean, it's absolutely spectacular. Yeah. I remember those, mm. gr- I listened to a really good interview with Giles Martin when the Sergeant Pepper remasters came out and he was playing a bit of the intro from the, you know, Sergeant Pepper reprise. And he just made this point of just how like heavy they're playing. He's, and he said, yeah. he, the phrase he used was they really dig, di- they really dug in, you know, and there's, right. uh, which is a great kind of uh, musicianship sort of phrase, this idea that, you know, yeah, you know, they hadn't played live much at that period, but I mean, they hadn't played live for a while at that period, but they were still like really going for it in the studio, you know, and that kind of, that connection they had, you can really hear it in that record, the energy of a live band and, a, you know, yeah, with the studio yeah. to emphasize. Yeah. I think a lot of that comes from in, in not, they're not like a, a house band, but they have that same sort of drilled like Hamburg thing where they're just playing five shows a night and, mm-hmm. you know, they're, they're so locked in when they get together in the room yeah. that even when it was the, th- the three of them in those um, sessions where they're very unenthusiastically jamming <laughs> together for the anthology, yeah. Yeah. there's still some yeah. kind of like weird magic going on yeah. there. That yeah. Well, yeah. And I, and for me, I mean, the, where, where, where I intersect with their art and where I feel really inspired by is that the Beatles aren't just the four people, you know, it's like the music that I, Magical Mystery Tour or Sgt. Pepper's or the White Re- White Album. It's like, it's them playing, but it, it's the process is so mm-hmm. much more than mm-hmm. than that. And the way George Martin is involved is ostensibly as a producer, but, you know, I mean, he's bringing stuff to the table that none of them could could yeah. mm-hmm. do. I mean, it, yeah. and even even on tunes where they're not even playing, you know, it's not, it's, mm-hmm. or a couple of them are playing. It's not as if the Beatles meant that there were four guys playing on the tracks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's not that's what the Beatles meant. fascinating about the White Album for me is the idea of, you know, this was just one of them, this was two of them, this was Paul on yeah. drums, you know, this is George Martin doing this, you know, that's... Yeah, and he's often the glue that sort of holds them all together and you know, his string writing in particular is is absolutely second to oh, someone incredible. who was just making comedy records and... You know, when you listen to the difference between the Phil Spector, you know, Phil Spector obviously was great at what Phil Spector did, but like he couldn't write a string octet. No, <laughs> yeah, definitely with that not. kind of nuance and balance, and it's perfect arrangement. Right, but that's one of the things as well. I often think you know there are so many elements that make a good album, and production is actually something that can be moving in and of itself. You know, I think when you know, you mentioned dub and everything, dub is where you're taking production. And giving it emotional resonance, you know, yeah. you know, that it's like literally, you know, you're going outside the frame and watching the kind of someone mixing and you know adding tons of reverb delay or whatever, and you know, that's the kind of thing that uh, actually affects you on an emotional level, which is not nothing to do with composition and nothing to do with like rhythm, uh, you know, in, in the traditional sense, but it's actually the production itself, and I think that's yeah. That's something I can hear in your records too. Oh well, yeah. Thank you. The only like Beatles stuff that I've like read, you know, like books that I've read or something like that, mm-hmm. is like George Martin, George Martin's book and Jeff Emmerich's book, right? Which I think says a lot about how I hear that, you know, like what mm. what I'm interested in when I mm. hear that music, because I think so much of it is just this incredible intersection of talent, and then also the era of big studios and and they basically had free reign i mean if you think if you think about like the resources financially even though it didn't break down like that for them necessarily but just having something like abbey road at your disposal and the whole team at abbey road like full basically full time as much as you wanted it i mean that doesn't Mm. exist like you uh, we talk i talk about this a lot it's like nobody in the world right now and probably for the past 40 years has had the resources to do what they what they did it, yeah. it doesn't exist like and and you know and they stopped touring which is obvious people know that but having toured a lot, a lot it's like like the the weight of that decision for their for their album making is like 
maybe underrated a little bit. Yeah, like in terms yeah. of the, you know, like I think Sergeant Pepper's and Magical Mystery Tour came out like eight months apart mm. or six months yeah. apart or something. It's like yeah. insane. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But but at the same time, it's like it's like they had all the resources in the world when it was like, hey, George, can you just like knock knock up this arrangement you know <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. like i would be just like that would take me a year of scheming to just to figure yeah. out how to fund anything close to that and they just yeah. had the ability to you know so it's it's just a an incredible intersection of 20th century kind of momentum be, yeah you know like from an arrangement and technology and and the people that were in the room and yeah, yeah. i think brian epstein doesn't get enough sort of credit for that because he was obviously incredibly reticent for them to stop touring and he gets a lot of shit for all the terrible managerial yeah. decisions that he made. Yeah. But that agreement with EMI to get them unlimited studio time mm. was that was probably one of the most important bits of paper ever signed. Yeah, in, definitely. In terms I mean, of British music. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Did you grow up in Richmond? Or you? I grew up in Virginia Beach. Well, I grew up in a lot of places: Virginia Beach, yeah. Philippines, Japan, and then right, yeah. ended up. Because I Richmond. remember our mutual friend Ben saying, you know, that you grew up when you were in the Philippines. You kind of missed out on a lot of things, like growing yeah. up. Like you missed out. Is it true you like never saw Back to the Future until you're yeah. like yeah, your twenties yeah. or something? Yeah, basically any of those movies, like <laughs> ET, Back to the Future, Goonies, anything. And they, I mean, I was there. I was born in 1982, but then moved over there when I was like two and a half, and then didn't okay. come back till so you, the early 90s. So, so did you miss did you miss any kind of musical cues at that kind of age, or did you, um, were you picking them up from your parents? No, I mean my parents are a little older. I mean I'm the youngest, and so my parents are kind of like the Elvis generation. Like they're mm. they're not like they're not hippies. They're older than hippies, and mm. um. But my parents, you know, I was I was talking to my wife the other day about they they have pretty good taste. They they would never call themselves like, you know, I don't know. They're not music nerds by any stretch of the imagination. Hipsters. But but we have <laughs> no no not no no not at all. Uh, that's funny. <laughs> um, but um, you know, there, there was stuff around the house, but but there was nothing new. You know, like so anything like anything that came on the eighties, like Michael Jackson or guns and roses or anything like that wasn't, I didn't have any access to that. It was all like oldies, what we would mm. call oldies over here. It was like mm. oldies radio. So, so 50s, 60s, 70s stuff. Um, some tapes like that around the house, kind of like greatest hits collection type stuff. So mm. I was, that's what I listened to until I went to middle school and realized that that wasn't cool. Um, <laughs> And then I kind of briefly touched into, you know, more modern music. But in the Philippines, I lived on Penny Lane. Right. Oh, nice. And and, um, and I was little. So for the longest time, I thought that Penny Lane, it just never occurred to me that there was another Penny Lane. Yeah. <laughs> and, I love that kind of childhood and, and thinking. Yeah. I was like, that is so cool that the Beatles wrote this song about this street <laughs> in the Philippines that I grew up on. That's so yeah. weird. But, you know, I was just... That sort of gave me an early life attachment to their music, which mm. is totally based on, you know, it's not true, obviously. But 
that was <laughs> that was. Were you um, sort of imagining that street in the Philippines? Yeah, well, it was, it was, it was like, like nurses selling poppies. It changed so much. There's <laughs> <Yeah>. um, <laughs> no barbershop or anything. <laughs> but that you know that was a long time ago. And yeah. uh, <laughs> anyway, that was always a fun. My first introduction to the Beatles was that um, those collections, like the blue one and the red one, where they're looking yeah. down. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that I I used to I had two tapes of that I think or I don't know somehow it was either tapes or CDs but um, and then I the whatever the early one is I didn't like that one <laughs> and, the red one <laughs> yeah and and I and I played the blue one which I guess is the older one like on loop so that was kind of my first introduction to them and I nice. was pretty familiar with that that music and then and then kind of as I got older I started playing guitar and. The, you know, just sort of got into the history of rock and roll a little bit and then sort of dug into the music. Is your title, if you have a job title, creative director? Yeah. So nice. what does that sort of entail in the studio? Um, well, it, it all depends on the project, you know. I mean, broadly, it has to do with really broad themes of, you know, who who are we dealing with? what what who our partners are like mm. you know space bomb basically is a organization that partners with people that make music and we can partner with them as a label or me as a producer or supplying musicians or as management or as a studio and all of those partnerships um you know have a certain tone artistic tone to them mm. and so the broad thing is i just kind of look at and look after like is are are we still on pitch you know with with all mm -hmm. the partnerships when they add up and like what what kind of sound that they make to keep that analogy going and um you know just making sure it, it all kind of makes sense creatively and that can mm -hmm. be really broad i mean really really broad and then specifically in terms of like the record label and a and r and who we're signing and and that kind of stuff it's a little bit more maybe dialed in you know, in the studio as a producer, it gets even more specific, you know, like if I'm producing, it's, it's, what does the snare drum sound like? And yeah, what? <laughs> how's, how's, how's George Martin influenced you in that kind of more specific way with kind of really drilling into, you know, well, compression, yeah, I mean, compressors, yeah. compressors you like or something. <laughs> I mean, there's really specific things. It's funny. I mean, on broad strokes, it's just orchestra plus rhythm section like mm -hmm. that. That's something that was kicking around in the, you know, begin sort of in the 50s and mm. 60s. But that basic equation was was sort of, you know, like we mentioned Phil Spector earlier, was, was you know, some people parse that out in different ways. Um, mm. And some of it is kind of more based on sort of what we would call classical music, models where sort of vocals in front of uh you know put a broad orchestration or on jazz band models which is a, sort of a different sort of thing and and he he just kind of he did that as good as anyone's gonna do it you know like mm -hmm. like how do you figure out how a, a rock and roll band plays and or or people with that aesthetic and are kind of coming they're coming from like rock and roll theology basically you yeah, know and, and yeah. what what that means for the choices you're going to make harmonically yeah. and rhythmically and then how do you deal with the art of orchestration and the art of composition as mm. it pertains to kind of intersecting with with someone who you know someone like paul or john who you know they want shit loud and they want you yeah you know they want it to be rough in places and, and kind of odd. And, and yeah. I just feel like he did such an incredible job of marrying those two aesthetics that are, mm. that are kind of fundamentally coming from different places. Um, so I, I would say broadly that that's the, that's a big one specifically. Yeah. There are certain ways he, I mean, I, I, I quote this all the time in his book. He talks about the better someone's vo voice is, the worse it sounds doubled, and the worse someone's voice is, the better it sounds doubled. Yeah, which well, that's very true for me. Yeah, was a, yeah <laughs> me too. And, um, <laughs> and so, almost all the vocals on my records are doubled, and that's one of the one of the reasons that I started doing that. Um, mm. Or when I when I was younger and I read that book, I was like, oh, I should try doubling my voice. And well, that's a I mean, it's so <laughs> funny, isn't it? Double like Elliot Smith as well, double yeah. tracking. Uh, you know, John Lennon is, is kind of 
That's almost the Lennon sort of sound. Yeah, it definitely it? Like, is. Yeah. <laughs> it's like doubled in and slapback. And like that's that's a little bit of the Matt White sound as well. I mean, it's, <laughs> it, it's like that worked for him, you know, mm. and I think that works for a certain kind of vocalist. With you, would you promise to be true and help me understand? Cause I've been in love before, and I found that love was more than just holding hands. There's kind of little things like that along the way, like yeah. in just process too, uh, like how you run sessions. And he really is a, was a a groundbreaker in terms of dealing with like modernity and like pushing forward but but not leaving kind of the art of orchestration and the art of the symphony kind of behind and i, I think yeah. that and and i think his influence mm-hmm. one thing that has been really important to space bomb and to me in particular is his influence on um this is sort of a weird left turn but in brazilian music and, and tropicalia music and if you read interviews with those guys like they'll just say like we had sort of our own folk music and we and we had the beatles mm. and like and that few years of like late 60s early 70s brazilian tropicalia which is some of the best music if not the best music like made period in my in mm. my point <laughs> yeah. of view it's like they're kind of taking that thing that the beatles did where where it's just like basically it's like weird shit and orchestra stuff and rock yeah. and roll and they're kind of mixing it up in a different way. And, and yeah. I think that that is, they're just not losing any of the art of orchestration, which is a really, yeah. really deep, important, exciting art. And George Martin was able to take that and not make it overly sentimental or, or kind of, mm. kind of the things that we, we associate sort of like overproduced, yeah, records with strings with which you know with Phil Spector's work with the Beatles, people like that's what they're basically taking issue with is mm. like that sort of yeah. tones doesn't quite hit in the same way as yeah, George it's, Martin's it's bizarre, work, does. isn't it? Like, I mean, you know, we've talked about this before, and it's obviously controversial at the time, but like they just sound so Disney-ish, isn't it? But it's nothing you can put your finger on. Mm. Whereas if you take something like Eleanor Rigby, it's so frosty and kind of there's something wintry about it and yeah. you know it's so evocative the string sound it's the sort of stiff british restraint yeah, thing maybe. i think is you know i think with those strings i can't imagine phil specter saying much more than you know more, more yeah yeah well yeah and phil specter isn't a writer i mean he doesn't write that stuff like he he yeah. he basically contracts that work out literally yeah. he's not whereas mm. george martin is in there writing i mean the horn arrangement on obla di obla da is like Fucking genius! Really, unbelievable. <laughs> You're so unbelievable. You know, the, um, actually, because we did an, an in the forthcoming episode, we talked with one of my favorite musicians, Benoit Pierlard, and he mentions the same thing. And but we've talked a lot about how ob- lots of people hate Obla Di Obla Da, but he's. I know. I heard that. I heard that on an earlier podcast. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I heard that on an earlier podcast, and I have to take great issue with that. I sure, think it's. Sure. A, I think it's incredible. I'm very much in the other camp. But my my issues with it are uh, not about the uh, arrangements. <laughs> yeah, yeah. the source, like the cultural appropriation issue, which is sort of... it's just bad. It's just not. <laughs> you think it's, you just think it's cheesy? Do you think yeah. it's cheesy? Oh uh, yeah, it's cheesy. I wouldn't say it's like a cultural appropriation way, but it's in, in such a like white British reggae mm. middle class people doing reggae. I think in the sixties, calypso is very. A popular to like pastiche in right. like kind of light mm. entertainment shows in the 1960s. Yeah, it does smack of that a little, little in bit, a yeah. really kind of Spike like Milligan-y way. As in yeah, what? but in a really sort of ignorant, stupid. Right, right, right. Yeah, I can see that. Um, uh, yeah, I, I'm I'm warming to it. And as I said before, I never skip it when I'm listening to the White Album. You know, yeah, I think it's, I think it's, <laughs> I think it's good, great. don't like to boil down to favorites but have you got one particular beatles period or record that is personifies it all for you i mean it's the two opposite ends of the spectrum it's like the sort of sergeant pepper's magical mystery tour thing which is just maximalist 
And mm. I really like that. I feel like that's something that is, is kind of not cool right now to just be like, I'm going to spend all the money I possibly can spend on like <laughs> most ridiculous shit. And like, and just, you know, like it's huge. It's absolutely yeah. huge. And it's conceptually big. It's, it's, you know, the recording session, you know, everything about it is just maxed out. And it's like a, mm. it's just a flex. It's like a Paul McCartney flex. And like mm. that is really cool. I mean, and, yeah. and it's a, and it's great. And it's great. I love that. I love that he, that they just sort of went to the edge there. There's not much more you can do that they could have done, you know? I mean, they're good songs mm. and they're great productions and it's great arrangements. It's just incredible group effort to get something like that made. I mean, the moving parts that go into getting a recording like that, and it's all in four track, which is in just a miracle of mm. recording. I mean, this, the, yeah. Just the skill sets that are at work, they're just, it's not shaded, you know? So, mm. Sometimes, like, when you listen to the record, you're like, oh, that's tricky. And, like, you know, that's cool. They kind of snuck that in there. There's no sneaking about those two records. It's just, like, here's how good we are. <laughs> just, just, like, look at it again and again and again and again <laughs> in neon lights. And, like, that's, I like that. And and then I like the White Album a lot. I think it's too long and and I like and it's great because of that and it's really aggressive and and um, weird. It's odd. Sort of a personal story about the white white album is um, when I was in college. I uh, there was this guy named Stephen Bernstein who's a trumpet player. Um, was kind of based in New York and was sort of involved with um, kind of like J John Zorn world. If you're familiar with that, oh, yeah, kind of right. like New York downtown, yeah. Mark Rabot, all those guys and was kind of friends with Lou Reed and like was his, Lou Reed's musical director just kind of like in basically he was like the trumpet player and arranger who did like all the coolest shit in New York and <laughs> would play in Levon Helms band for a long time oh. and just he like had all the gigs that you would dream of as a horn player and arranger and so I just um definitely the most influential musical event in my life is I emailed his record label actually and then was like, hey, is there any way to get in touch with this guy? And they just sent me a cell phone number. And I called, just cold called this guy. and was like, hey, my name's Matt. I was probably like 21 years old. And I was like, hey, I'd love to just um, basically take a lesson was, was how I phrased it. I was just, I want to take a lesson from you about arranging because was, that was kind of like my thing at the time. And... Mm -hmm. um, and he called me back and was super cool. I mean, just way, way, way too cool. And um, I lied and told him that <clears throat> I was going to be up in New York for a few months and that I could come by his house anytime. And he just named the time and I just took <laughs> off of school. You know, it's like I took <laughs> off a few days and just drove up to New York. And for a few years, I would go up there a, a few times a year and just kind of sit with him in his back room and and just listen to records and wow. listen to, and he had, you know, it's like, he just had, because uh, as a trumpet player and a ranger, so he get hired, he get hired for a few different things, you know, you get hired as a trumpet player and he had worked with like Aretha Franklin and Dr. John and Alan Toussaint and like all these, oh like basically everybody that you could imagine working with mm -hmm. that you would want to work with. And then as an arranger, he had worked on a lot of really cool things too. And worked with Hal Wilner actually, who just recently passed because coronavirus and they were like best buds but um um anyway but the f all that to say a lot to unpack from that but all that to say is the first time i was there we we're he's like a jazz guy you know and i was in jazz school so i was mm -hmm. you know so it was like i was kind of interested in the gil evans of the world and and like just kind of when jazz sort of just really blatantly intersected with um you know rock and roll or something just things mm -hmm. it was kind of more worn on its sleeve or productions that were more like that and i remember he when we were talking about arranging the the one of the first things he brought up was like have you listened to how familiar are you with the white album wow <laughs> and i was at that time i was like you know uh the last time i listened to the white album probably was kind of when i was like a hippie in high school and was sort of like quote unquote past that like in my jazz mm. asshole head you know <laughs> and, and like mm. and and 
you know, he was just kind of like, well, how familiar are you with this record? And I was like, I don't know. I've heard this. I'm, I, yeah, I know this music, you know, or whatever. And he was like, you just, you need to live with this record over and over and over again. This is unbelievable arrangement. Mm -hmm. And, he, you know, he's not talking about George Martin's work or like the, mm. he's talking about the band playing. Yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. He, he's talking about the choices that they're making as a creative group, not not just the choices that George Martin's making as an arranger and like, mm. and how arrangement and production kind of like, you know, as we move on in the 20th century, they kind of like morph into one thing a little bit. And, yeah. and the White Album is such a good example of musicality and high level, just really in-depth thinking about how you make a record and the choices you make without it without it wearing it itself on its sleeve like they do on Sgt. Pepper's, which is maybe a little bit like gross at times, you know, because it's like it's so it's mm. so filled up, you know, in that way. Mm. And and that was that was a real like lesson, you know, in terms of how to listen to music and 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 that's been that's been really influential to me as a mm. decision maker, and you know, kind of changed my relationship with that record a little bit. Um, it was just interesting to hear a guy like that out of all the records that he could have pulled out. Yeah. You know, yeah. all the music that he's familiar with, just be like the White Album. This is some heavy shit for an arranger. You know, that's yeah. not really like where you would go normally. Um, and that was really cool. One last story. We went into um, when I was first touring Beginner, They one morning we kind of woke up and they were like, do you want to go to Abbey Road? And I was like, yeah, like, hell yeah, what do you, of course. We'll want to go. And and they do a tour. They'll, they, they take you on, you know, you just go and mm. and they sort of show you around the spot. Have you have either of you guys been to Abbey Road? No, no. Well, it's, it's um, you know, it's funny because it's, it's like a functioning recording studio. You know, they're trying to keep alive in the days of home recording. But mm. so I think they, they try to bring bands there because they're, they're actually trying to drum up business, which is ironic or something. I don't know. Yeah. It, it sort of struck me as like, oh, wow, really? Abby? Not that they don't really say that out loud, but I think, you know, that's kind of part of it. And anyway, the point is, is we went to the Beatles room is like, it looks exactly the same. Exactly mm. the yeah. same. They take you to that Studio 3 and you walk in and it was like, um, to be honest, I'm not super nostalgic for music stuff or kind of like a collector or like, you know, like just I don't go in for that a lot. But yeah, walking yeah. into that room, it was just got straight up, just got chills. Like yeah. you, so you walk in, it's just like, oh, my God, it's like all here. And and uh, it looks exactly just like all those pictures. And then Trey, the, it's like my best Instagram video ever is the you know, the guy's there and he's just sort of like throwing off stuff like, oh, yeah, this is the mic that they recorded the lead vocals for this on. And it's just like, it's mm. just ridiculous, the, yeah. the stuff that's still there. And then he, he's like, yeah, this is the Lady Madonna piano. And I was like, nice. I was like, what? You know, it's just so weird that they that yeah. it's still there and it's so fine. And then just, so Trey, like, oh, and I was like, can we play it? And my buddy Trey is playing piano in the band. It was like, he just opened up the lid and starts playing lady madonna whoa and That's it was crazy. like the odd but the, the crazy thing i mean it sounds it's so obvious but it like it sounded exactly like lady madonna yeah, it yeah, was like yeah. <laughs> oh like that's just the sound of this piano You're like right, that's what yeah. this piano sounds like and like that was such a i don't really know what that taught or showed but it was just this really odd moment that all he did was just like play the piano and that was it i mean that was, it was exactly what that riff sounded like and it was wow. it was really cool it was really cool it was a really weird so moment cool. yeah. Sort of yeah. i'm so like, glad all those instruments are still there and they're not precious about them and you know they're still oh, used no. on those recordings uh, if some millionaire bought that and it just sat and went out of tune in mm. some dining there's room a, somewhere there's this guy called lester the microphone tester that um <laughs> you should get on the show actually if he yeah. is still around um He's a elderly man who has been there for, I mean, like seventy years or something. I mean, like mm. a long, long time. Wow. And all he does is just keep up the microphones. So and, cool. and 
he just, it's like you go and we went into his office and it's just like this little office and he just has just like these pull out, like these pull out trays. And it's just like a million dollars worth of microphones, you know, in each, yeah. In yeah, each yeah. tray, he just like pulls it out. And it's just like, it's just unbelievable. The, the gear that's still there. And then he, he just had all this, um, knew everything about every one of them. And he mm. was so, so charming and such a great host. And wow. Just, I mean, had every story in the book, you know, about the experience, his experience there, but, but he had just been, you know, he worked at Abbey road his whole entire life and just fixed microphones. And then he showed us the, like the first stereo microphone that had ever been made. And it was like, <laughs> it's just like a, it's like a comedy, like what's yeah. in that building that, you know, and he said, I mean, he said, this is the best, you know, this is the best microphone selection in the world. Like, you know, no one, it's not really repeatable, you know? And I think that's, what's mm-hmm. so interesting about the whole thing. It's just like, this is the whole ecosystem there. It's just an unrepeatable event that, mm-hmm. you know, to some extent it's still there and still, yeah, it was still available, which is, which is kind of cool. Um, anyway, that was a fun experience. I was going to say, um, this isn't to do with the Beatles, by the way. <laughs> do you remember, because um, uh, I'd met you a few times. I think the first time I met you was about when The Beginner came out, which obviously yeah. the pun is so obvious now I say it, but <laughs> <laughs> I saw you in London. I saw you a few times on that tour, like through our friend Ben and everything. And then um, I was playing with a band in, I had I was rehearsing in Utrecht and I realised you were playing across town in the oh, Tivoli. Yeah. Do you remember this? And yeah. And um, I sort of I was with my the band I was playing with, and I was like, we were going for dinner, and I thought, oh, I'll just pop over the road and just say hi to Matt and the band and everything. And um, well, a the Tivoli was like miles away, <laughs> and then my phone died, and then so I like got to the venue, and it was like really early. It was like seven. And the security, I was just like, I was uh, there's a security guard there saying, oh hey, I just want to like. Um, say hi to them because i know them and then i realized i sounded mad and like <laughs> yeah, right. he, he didn't let me in so he said oh, like no. oh well you know like we'll just pack but get a ticket like everyone else i was like yeah uh, yeah yeah i will like you know i'm you know so i got, I got a ticket and it was like you were on at like 10 <laughs> so, <laughs> it was like so what do you do when you're at a gig on your own just get pissed get, yeah i got really drunk and um <laughs> and, so like basically, the only time I had to queue at the to buy a T-shirt at the end to say hi, it was like basically, oh yeah, I just oh, wanted to say hi because I'm in town. Uh, like I had ten pints <laughs> yeah. to buy a T-shirt. That's funny. That's good. That's great. Uh, it was good. Good. Great times though. Yeah, <laughs> that's fun. That's a good story. It's, um. You know, if COVID wasn't happening, I guess, what, what are your plans musically? Are you going to release another album of your stuff? Yeah, I mean, I had a record on the books for just right smack in the middle of COVID time. So mm. that got mm. pushed. I mean, you know, and that's I'm thankful for that, actually. It's better that it's pushed than it came out. So um, and then I made there's another kind of collaborative record that I made that. So I think, you know, I'm about to kick off a seat. It's been a while since I released some music and um I think the next year will be of a lot of stuff that's kind of, you know, been recorded. So, um, kind of just start getting that out there and hopefully things will open up a little bit and I'll get to travel. Um, mm, but, cool. but if not, you know, the, the, there's new music coming. I'm really excited about it and, you know, yeah. I, I, I like well, it at least. So maybe yeah, other people we'll look, will as look well. forward to hearing it. So that was the brilliant Matthew E. White. Um, fantastic guest. Thrilled to hear that there is a, a record coming out soon. Um, mm. If you haven't heard his solo albums, uh, they're really worth checking out, especially for just the way they sound. I mean, Space Bomb's such a cool idea. Yeah. Um, they're such sonically interesting records. They're sort of retro, but it's very modern at the same time. I absolutely love them. Um, I really love his work on Natalie Press's album. Didn't yeah, even like get that. a chance to talk about that. Mm. Didn't get a chance to talk to him about Randy Newman as well, which yeah. um, I know he's a huge fan and really wanted to bring that up. So, you know, 
there was there was so much stuff in there that um, you know we could have talked to him for hours. It was fantastic. Yeah, the Space Bomb records are brilliant. You can hear elements of soul and classic rock and the influence of hip hop, which we kind of briefly touched on as well. And yeah, there were some brilliant stories about touring and visiting Abbey Road as well. So it was uh, highly enjoyable. Yeah, great stuff. Mm. Um, and we'll be back next week with another fantastic guest. We've, uh, we're going to be talking to comedian Gabby Best, who is uh, a fantastic comedian and a big Yoko Ono fan, I think. Nice. So that, we should get some brilliant stories out of that. Really mm. looking forward to that one. Um, you can keep your personal Beatles stories coming in. And don't forget to contact us, personalbeatles.com forward slash contact. And, yeah, I mean, we won't hammer home the donation thing, but, you know, we would really love it if you'd donate to the show and help us... Uh, cover the costs for the last few remaining episodes we've got some amazing guests coming up and if you have enjoyed the show you can go to apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and give us a five star rating and leave a nice review we love reading them um we'll read out some of the best ones and uh, yeah they're really appreciated and really help other people find the podcast so thank you for listening and we'll be back next week with gabby best see ya your Own Personal Beatles is presented by Jack Pelling and Robin Allender. The podcast artwork is done by Morgan Ritchie. It's produced by me, Jack Pelling, and is a Homespun Sounds production. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.